In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Nackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. Hello, folks. Well, last time on Notably Disney, we began our conversation into the magic and music of The Hunchback of Notre Dame, which recently celebrated its 25th anniversary. Boy, it's hard to believe that a quarter of a century has passed since this film entered our lives, and what an impact it has had on our lives, too. So in the second part, James and I continue to analyze the songs and score from Hunchback and its influence in other parts of society. So let's get right back into that conversation. Shifting over to a, a few other um, songs, mm-hmm. the, there's the, the Court of Miracle song. Um, yeah. I always forget about that one, actually, quite yes. honestly. Yes, I do. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, and that's all we have to say about that song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a strange one. I think, hmm, I know I said it, there's nothing uh, fault in, in the film, but I, I don't know. This is the whole scene when they go to the Court of Miracles is often, if I'm just thinking back on the film, is one that is, is, is missing from my memory. Um, I don't know why. Is it not as successful because it's just not, doing anything musically that's as exciting as the other songs is it not moving things along i don't know what do you think i think that's probably a very fair interpretation it's it's relatively brief um it's it's more reflective of the setting than the characters and their motivations perhaps but one could also say you know topsy-turvy is like that too it's not necessarily about the characters so much as it is the the setup and the environment and, and the event that's happening. So yeah. maybe that's one perspective. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't have the it doesn't have the the, the color and the vibrancy of topsy turvy and yeah. Yeah. And I, as I say, Clopin is such a strange character that um, particularly here where he's about to hang Quasimodo and Phoebus. It's I, I don't know what I think of the character. <laughs> 
for the stranger. It's funny, you know, so yeah, I think Clopin is, I mean, he could get his own backstory, really. Like if Disney wants to do another like Cruella or Maleficent, why not Clopin? Like, I'm sure he has some <laughs> interesting baggage. Uh, yeah. But it was funny. I was I was on YouTube recently and just I had come across some like old interesting Disney Channel specials, and I came across this special from 1996 when Hunchback debuted um, around the holiday season, and it was some of the like just kids making crafts that were Disney themed. But one of the central because there were Disney characters involved, Clopin was helping the kids make crafts. So you have this like okay. live live action Clopin and he was fantastic. So I'm like, <laughs> Clopin actually during the time he got a little bit of love, so. Well, give it time. He'll probably have a 10 part series on Disney plus anytime. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, who would be cast as Clopin? That's the story, that's the question. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, I'll think on that. <laughs> Maybe Neil Patrick Harris because he's very much into magic, so. Yeah, and he has that mischievous glint as well. Yeah. Um, but other other than casting that series, um, <laughs> if we were to move forward, the, the the next pair of songs, because arguably they can be paired, but they're also distinct. Uh, we have Heaven's Light and Hellfire. Um, it's and I think on many soundtracks they're often combined because of how they're placed within the film. But um, obviously, taking it over, uh, I'd love to turn it over to you first in terms of um, your your impressions of those pieces. Well, to me, Heaven's Light feels like the starter before the main course of Hellfire. Um, it's not that I don't like Heaven's Light. I think it's a, a great piece. Um, it, it, to me, doesn't it, it's not doing the same thing as Out There, which is fine. You don't want it to do the same thing. Um, but what I just love about Hellfire is that how dark it goes and the imagery which reminded me watching it back again today of um or the shadows reminded me of dr facilier and oh yeah frog and the um the fire and the the use of the color red basically reminded me of uh scar singing in the lion king um but <laughs> Uh, aside from those sort of well allusions to things that <laughs> films before and after this film, um, there's just so much depth and so much in Tony Jay's oh, delivery is just you hate this guy, <laughs> but this song is is on another level. Uh, and, and then you've got the priest singing as well, the Kerry Laison, um, and and the and singing in Latin at the side, it's, it's adds so much depth and richness that I, I don't think there's a villain song to match it for how awful <laughs> um, it paints the villain. Yeah, it's it's kind of gut wrenching to listen to because of I mean, and and yeah, you're right with Tony J's delivery. It's just just so haunting and. Um, just what a powerful voice, but be, you also have, you know, the, that really s strong and effusive chorus that, I mean, I, and, and this is, and we'll talk about the, the stage version shortly, but it almost feels like a song that's just, you're completely enveloped in because of yep. all these different voices that are serving as such a counterpoint to, to Frollo. And it's just, it's, it's a really 
disturbing song on on so many fronts, not only visually but also the lyrics and um, and and certainly how people have interpreted his uh, Frollo's um, uh, intentions toward uh, Esmeralda, which is obviously very um, upsetting. So yeah, many yeah. levels. But but then we have a guy like you, which couldn't be. Uh, any more uh, complete reversal, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's the only song that's dropped from the um, English language stage version. Yes, yes. Um, it, it does appear on the German version, but and I and I can understand why. Well, there's no gargoyles, uh, well, or at least there's no Hugo Laverne and um, Victor in the stage version, and I can see why. But I, yeah, a guy like you has got it rhymes Adonis with croissantes, and <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's just one of my favorite rhymes in I think any song. Um, and it, I think I say you need that undercutting of the tension because it hellfire and everything that Frollo is up to is so dark, um, that you need that lightness, um. And I, I like, well, I, I, I like the, uh, what I like to think about with the gargoyles is there's that theory, isn't there, that um, they don't actually exist, that they're figments of Quasimodo's imagination, perhaps they're his conscience, they're his Jiminy Cricket. Um, and I, I think a guy like you doesn't do anything much to dispel that notion. Um, and it's, it's just a load of fun. And what I like about his presentation is it reminds me of the, uh, or it reminds me of Be Our Guest or I Just Can't Wait to Be King in that sort of abstract nature. It goes a lot more abstract than anything else in the film. Um, and, and I don't think that is to its detriment. Uh, yeah, I don't know. What, what do you think about a guy like you? Yeah, that is also probably the first time I figured out what an Adonis was. So um, it was yeah. very effective on that level. Um, you know, similar to God Help the Outcasts and, and perhaps it manifested in some of the other songs too, there's some really nice use of piano in here. So I guess I'm just a bit more attuned to that as, as someone who plays the piano myself, but I love when Victor plays and, and he's actually playing the piano himself, which I think is great. But um, so we have that visual cue as well, but um, it, it feels very French in nature, like almost that you would be seeing this at like a like a Moulin Rouge or some type of review. Um, so it has that real flair that is a bit evident in Topsy Turvy, but I think a bit, but I think perhaps more salient here um, in terms of the use of strings and, and just the, the musical undertones. So I, I quite like the song. I, I realize that not everybody loves the gargoyles. I found them to be a blast. I, I still enjoy them and and it's, it, it doesn't quite propel the plot, but it still, it, it serves as a reinforcement of Quasimodo seeing value in himself. And yeah. I think that is necessary, particularly during that kind of climactic uh, portion of the movie. Yes, yeah. And before I described Heaven's Light as a starter and Hellfire as the main course, so maybe a guy like you is the dessert, something sweet oh, yeah. to take away some of that. Um, salty taste of Frollo. 
Well, uh, yes, and, and I, I guess the, the dessert also includes a croissant, so. Yes. <laughs> so maybe it's I a think... chocolate croissant. <laughs> I think um, there's some uncharitable people might just see the gargoyles, and particularly a guy like you, as just something in there for the kids. And I think that would be to do the, both the gargoyles and a guy like you a disservice, because I think there's the, the song is um, every bit as complex and lyrically um, dexterous as the other songs just for different effects just to you know it's like you say it doesn't quite propel the plot but um, I wouldn't want it not to be there in the animated film I'm happy for it not to be there in the much darker stage musical <laughs> sure yeah and you talk about the abstract nature as well and and I think even though the placement in the film is differs and, and ultimately the intentions are are variant as well. I also think that it's not too much unlike a BR guest in terms of just being very playful and like a, almost like just a like a vaudevillian review of sorts. Um, yeah. So it's it seems a little bit counterintuitive, but I, I don't think it's too dissimilar from BR guest in that way. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, true. Also in France. So there you go. Um, yeah. <laughs> So it should uh, sound French. Yes, exactly right. Uh, I only made that connection now. I'm like, seriously, Brett, I should have. <laughs> um, and, and then certainly the, the last piece of music we hear within the context of the film is the reprise of Bells of Notre Dame. Um, where, you know, we have lyrical differences here. Um, yep. and, but, but then the main final song, so to speak, is in the end credits you referred to Someday. So um, it sounds like that it's uh, definitely connected with you. Yes, yeah, someday has. And um, mainly, as I say, uh, well, I, I've got the CD soundtrack here with Eternal on it. So whoever this awful one is, I don't know. <laughs> um, and I just think it, it's another one that's a beautiful song that's got that gospel element to it that, that just works quite nicely. Um, and my, my CD here has also got God Help the Outcast by Bette Midler. Oh yeah, I don't know that's, if that's right. On any... Yeah, I don't. That wasn't on the credits to the the film. I I've, I've, I know. But I, I, is it on a version? Is it on a version you know? I don't think so. I I would have yeah. to look back. Maybe it's just a bonus. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I like the Midler version quite a lot, and certainly she's been a star for Disney and so many yeah. projects. So, um, and and I think I was just kind of. Uh, along the lines of like um, Vanessa Williams' Colors of the Wind or what Michael Bolton did with Go the Distance, they often had a very poppy p commercial star to yeah. reinterpret um, a, a primary song from the film. Mm -hmm. but, Are you a fan of Someday? You know, I don't, I don't have as much of a connection to it, probably because I haven't listened to it as much as the other pieces. Um, it's actually one that I kind of forget exists at times, um, yeah. like the Court of Miracles song, but it definitely has a, uh, a brightness to a hopefulness to it, I should say, yeah. that I think is um, very appropriate. Yeah, it's quite a delicate song in some ways, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. That's what I quite like about it. There's a, a softness to it. It fits quite nicely as an end credits song, I think, because of that. For sure. And, and you know, we, we saw many examples of this in, in Disney films 
um, moving forward where you would have a distinct song that was only in the credits, um, yeah. like True to Your Heart from Mulan and uh, My Funny Friend and Me from uh, Emperor's New Groove, among others. So there hadn't been as many instances of that, I don't think, until around uh, that juncture. Yeah, yeah, not as many. I was just thinking, sorry, about um, how Go the Bells of Notre Dame um, reminds me of the, the opening song in Frozen. Which... Oh, yeah, Frozen Heart, sure. Frozen Heart, yeah, yeah, because it sets up the, it tells you right there and then in the lyrics what's going to happen and what this film is going to be about. Um, I've not made that connection before. And I just thought I would make a note of that. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, I you know it's my the the even though it's again tone is very different, but the connection I make with Frozen Heart and another Disney song is actually "I'll Make a Man Out of You" from Mulan because it's very it's very masculine and brutish in sound. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even though obviously the the intentions are vastly different, but I, I can see what you're saying with Bells of Notre Dame and Frozen Heart. I'm sure. That just yeah, it's just setting out the this is the theme. It's who's the monster and who's the man, or it's. Um... Mm the frozen heart yeah wow there you go lyrics lyrics are important we can see the parallels <laughs> so let's shift over to the score briefly james um we obviously we've talked at length about the songs but um just a few fun facts for listeners in case they're interested um the score for the hunchback of notre dame was nominated for both um, an Oscar and a Golden Globe. This was a period with the Academy Awards where they actually split musical scores into two categories, whether they were uh, musical or comedies or dramas. Um, so it was nominated in the musical or comedy um, category and a Golden Globe did not win either. Um, but the score obviously was lauded um, for good reason. But um, what do you appreciate about its musical score by Alan Menken? Uh, well, as I said, it's the depth and the scope of it. It's unlike anything, any other score that I've heard. Um, I don't have a lot to say about the score. So as I say, I don't have that vocabulary to talk about the music, but I would happily just listen to the score on its own if that was possible. Um, but no, I need the songs because I need to sing along at the same time. But I think particularly the um, the end of the film is with the, when the the drama of the the final fight is just epic. It's up there with um, the stampede in Lion King for me in terms of the, the dramatic excitement that it inspires. Uh, what what's your take on the score? You know, it has a lot of the traditional elements of a Mencken score, which is where you often have a lot of instrumental versions or variations of these songs um, in that format. Um, yeah. So, and I think that works often pretty well. I, I can't say, I, I think it's a beautiful score, don't get me wrong. I think certain other scores by by Mencken stand out more significantly than Hunchback, um, just because of, I don't know, the... The distinctness or maybe how how frequently I may even listen to the score but I think the sanctuary scene is is just so profound and epic and um, there's there's quite a, a lot of use of um, of uh, percussion um, just to kind of build the the excitement in um, 
in different aspects of, of the film. I, I think it's definitely a, a score that I enjoy. I don't, I can't say I listen to it terribly often, but um, I, depending on my mood, I might play um, more of the uh, playful and, and peaceful music that's set in the bell, bell tower in the earlier scenes versus the, the drama um, at the culmination, but it, it serves the, it serves the movie well. And ultimately I don't, I get irritated when I'm watching a movie and the, and the score just feels so out of place. And, and for Hunchback, it, because of Mencken's adeptness, it always sets the right tone. It just comes down to how, how much do you feel inclined to listen to, um, to it outside of the film's context? And I would say the main theme or, or sound to the film that stands out is just instrumental versions of Bells of Notre Dame, which reappears at, at different points. Yeah, yeah. I suppose there's, there isn't a one piece like um, transformation from the end of Beauty and the Beast. Right. Or, um, there's, there's, there's no one piece named piece that I could name from the score, I suppose, uh, thinking about it. It's, I think it's hard to separate, as you say, that, well, as you kind of um, suggested there, maybe that the separating the songs from the score is trickier with the Hunchback because men can make so much use of bits of the songs <laughs> to uh, interpret his score. Yeah. I think what, what, what we really need is um, a double disc legacy collection uh, special edition that's what we really need James if I I have wanted that so badly I was so <laughs> upset like because that legacy collection series it, I think it started around 2013-2014 and like 2016 should have been the 20th you know anniversary of Hunchback and we get that CD yep. set it never came mm -hmm. I need to get someone on with Walt Disney Records on the line because boy there's there's an audience for that Definitely. And we need a Blu-ray with more features than the, the, the scant features that we've got, or at least some of them on Disney Plus. <laughs> yeah, on Disney Plus, all, all we get, I think, is like a multi-language reel of a guy like you, yep. which is ridiculously entertaining, but there's, there needs to be more. <laughs> Definitely. We need more Hunchback in the world. <laughs> exactly. Well, this is actually, I think that was a fantastic segue even if un unintended to talk about one of the final themes of our discussion, which is Hunchback's musical influence, um, whether it be in the parks, on stage, in other formats. Talk about what, what's, I obviously have some talking points on my end, but what stands out to you about other manifestations of Hunchback in Disney and society? Um, so I don't feel like I've seen or heard uh, perhaps um, many references to Hunchback in my own experience of um, the Disney parks, certainly. Um, so I was last in Disneyland Paris in February before everything locked down last year. So that was a good final hurrah. Um, and what is there connected to the Hunchback of Notre Dame in Disneyland Paris? Which you would think there would be. Um, so my, the main sort of way I've come into contact with Hunchback and Notre Dame music, particularly uh, in the time since it was released, is uh, well, the, listening to the, the soundtrack to both the German musical from whenever that was from 1999, I believe, and the um, English language uh, 
musical, which I have not seen. I would love to see it. Uh, and I've listened to this. I think it's his musical soundtrack that I've listened to more than any other. Um, I think I... Would it be sacrilege to say that I enjoy the stage version even more than the animated uh, soundtrack? Um, I think people might be lighting up the pitchforks. <laughs> <laughs> I just love the the darkness that I love about the original film is tenfold in the stage uh, version, and I think that's what I, I, I go for that darkness. What I one of the best moments of my life. This is sad. Is uh, going to see Disney live in concert at the Royal Albert Hall two or three years ago, and they had some phenomenal singers. I think it was just four singers um, interpreting uh, Disney songs from all, all kinds of animated songs, and, and I think some from the live action shows as well. Um, well, mostly from the stage musicals, perhaps. Anyway, um, I knew there would be songs from The Lion King. I knew there would be songs from Aladdin and uh, Inevitably Frozen. Um, but I was so elated to find out there uh, being sung in the Albert Hall with uh, a full orchestral accompaniment by, I think the singer was called Anton Zetterholm. And I, I was on cloud nine when he'd finished singing that song. It, it was everything to me. So that's my own personal uh, uh, thoughts on the Hunchback post the film. But where I've seen it impacted in, in kind of more broadly, I personally haven't seen it that much. Um, perhaps you have. I think with Hunchback, uh, well, first off, thank you for sharing all that. I, I think with Hunchback, what I've noticed is a lot of it was limited to a specific time and place. So when the film mm -hmm. debuted in 96 um, at Disneyland um, in Frontierland at the old Big Thunder Ranch, there was a whole almost like musical theater in the round that, um, that was themed around Hunchback that played for a short time at the Disney MGM Studios in Florida for I believe it was maybe six, seven years, there was the Hunchback of Notre Dame musical adventure um, in the Backlot Theater. And that was your traditional maybe 25 minute stage show of Hunchback. Um, and, uh, and, and certainly there were other presentations of it in the parks in, you know, via merchandise and, and in, in other spaces briefly around the film's debut. But in terms of its lasting legacy, um, in the in the U.S. parks, I, I'm not as familiar um, outside of the states, but um, not too much. I, I believe I want to say at Hong Kong Disneyland they have a, a an establishment in Fantasyland called Festival of Foods. Okay, um, I I seem to recall that from from my research, but yep. yeah, it's been it's been limited in the parks. You mentioned how the music is occasionally presented in Disney themed concerts. Yeah. Um, and, and certainly, and I think this is perhaps um, the, the most uh, apt spot to mention the stage musicals, um, the one in Germany, um, certainly at the tail end of the nineties and then um, ultimately the uh, new interpretation that carried certain elements of that, um, that, that appeared in the States um, around 2015. 15 roughly um, yep. 
uh, the, I think originally at the La Jolla Playhouse in San Diego, maybe they pl played a few other places and then became uh, where um, it could be licensed. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah well, I never made it to Broadway, did it? No. And I think a lot of people were terribly upset about that. But mm. um, I mean, just to summarize the, the, the stage version, it's extremely dark in tone compared to the film. Um, the gar gargoyles are completely cut out. It's, um, it's certainly much more dramatic and really reinforces, I, I think, a lot of the d darker undertones um, associated with the book um, as well. But um, what just thoughts about the, the musical version? I know you talked about the soundtrack being one that you quite value. Yes, yeah, I love it. I, I love all the, yeah, let's say all of the new songs. <laughs> Flight into Egypt isn't a favorite, but I still like it. Um, I like that it gives uh, Esmeralda another song. We've got Rhythm of the Tambourine, which is just uh, so catchy, and I can't help but dance along to that. Um, and Made of Stone towards the end is just something else. Uh, what I like, I've read the book, uh, Victor Hugo's original uh, novel some time ago. And not, so I've noticed that the, the stage musical, while not being completely true to the book, is more true to the book than the um, animation was. Um, I don't think that makes it any better or any worse. But I just noted that that's, I think, where that darkness where you know, characters actually die as opposed to just Frollo. Um, Frollo is, because uh, I think for the film, in the book, Frollo is uh, a member of the church with a, a priest, uh, and they didn't want to make the priest the bad guy, I think, in Hunchback, and so they changed him to this judge. And so that's sort of corrected in the <laughs> stage musical, if you will. But I think maybe making it so dark is the reason it didn't get to Broadway or it didn't get the, the same success as some of the other Disney stage musicals in that it might, you know, scare the children <laughs> who, who wouldn't expect um, a Disney product to be so dark, which um, if you mind me just mentioning briefly, uh, we talked about previously when I've been on my PhD, yeah, which, which uh, asked adults about their experiences of Disney films and what they thought a Disney film was about. Um, and sort of broadly, uh, the majority of people thought Disney films were about animation, about princesses, um, about musicals. Um, and just before I started my PhD uh, and put out my survey and asking people what they thought about Disney films, I ran a couple of focus groups with some undergraduate students in my university and I showed them uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame, which was as close to seeing it on the big screen as I could get because we had a, a, a cinema within the university. So I was able to, to play the Blu-ray there. Uh, and then I had a focus group afterwards and spoke to the students and asked them what they thought of the film. So many of them, as uh, alluded to earlier, so many people hadn't seen The Hunchback, but they'd seen uh, nearly all the other Disney big hitters from the Renaissance and earlier. Um, but The Hunchback seems to pass people by. And I'm not quite, I've never really put my finger on why that is. Um, but they, they were all 
nearly all of them who'd never seen it before or they hadn't seen it uh, as adults, as young adults, they'd only seen it as children, were shocked by the darkness, the, the themes, and how um, complex, I think, the film was. And I think that's something that is not just common to the Hunchback of Notre Dame, but other Disney films, there's, there's complexity that a lot of people just don't appreciate because they see Disney films as, I say for kids, just a bit of animation, just, you know, a diversion, but there's so much more to them without wanting to get into a deep discussion of, um, of, of how Disney films are presented. But I think that just going back to the, the stage musical, I think maybe that is why it didn't take off or it wasn't pushed in the same way as other Disney stage musicals have been because it's, it, it doesn't, it's too dark for the Disney brand. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I, I definitely think it is from a, from a consumer appeal standpoint, I think a production like Hunchback is not the type that's going to capture that, you know, the four quadrants that, that are often discussed in, um, in films and other types of media where you're appealing to, um, you know, both men and women uh, that are adults and also children. And, and certainly we can disrupt those notions as well. But I think with Hunchback, it's, it, it is such a contrast and a, a counterpoint to to what the traditional Disney animated film was to that point. And, and I think since then we have seen a lot of variations um, of that, but there's still a certain mold um, that that a, that a, a musical from the Disney animation upholds. It's, I think what I was very encouraged by with the, the Hunchback production here in the States was that Disney, even though it was not a Broadway, it was not meant for Broadway, they still released an, an official cast recording of the production. And it, I remember when it debuted, I believe it was 2016, it may have been 2015, but I think 2016, it did massively well on iTunes and, and other platforms from what I recall. And I think it, it helped capture a new interest in the interpretation of Hunchback, which was really, I think, vital for um, to show Disney's reach and also, I think, to appeal to folks who maybe had heard of Hunchback in the past but really weren't properly introduced and, and this new version um, with this new, new set of songs and, and some carried from um, the German one really uh, appealed to folks. So I was very pleasantly surprised by that at the time. Yeah. And, and I love Made of Stone as well, like you mentioned. And um, Michael Arden, the, the gentleman who um, played the role of Quasimodo, has a brilliant voice and has such range and can sustain notes for so long. F fantastic choice. I, I never cease to, to love listening to him as Quasimodo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's it. I think maybe, it, maybe it's his voice that's... It just resonates and it's, it makes it his own. Absolutely. Well, and, and I know uh, we, we, we can't end this discussion without mentioning that there was a direct-to-video sequel. Um, <laughs> I wondered when you mentioned that. <laughs> <laughs> All I have to say about it is I remember how it was for a long period of time leading up to its video debut when Disney had 
commercials uh, uh, trailers for it on their other videos and um, I remember being so excited for it and ultimately being so unimpressed as I yeah. think most people feel as it was very panned there are a couple of I, I do like the song um, I can't think see it, it's so forgettable unfortunately that yeah. I can't think of the name of the song but the the one toward the beginning where he's talking about bells and um, beauty um, beauty and the bells that's of course not the title um but uh it was it was a, a very problematic film from the standpoint of it it failed to capture most of the magic of the original so yes and it's particularly problematic if you're reading it from a queer point of view because i don't want quasimodo to get a girlfriend <laughs> <laughs> not necessarily saying that quasimodo is is a queer character but um it almost does him a disservice in some ways to sort of pulls the rug out of the um, the reason for the first film and, and him finding acceptance in himself. He doesn't need another person. <laughs> no, that's that's definitely fair. Um, yeah, it's. We, I, go ahead. I'm sorry, James. I was say I can't remember anything about the film other than it existed. <laughs> that was about it. And I, th I think, and I'm not someone who dismisses all of the um director video sequels i think some of them are worthwhile but this was just one that I, I probably won't revisit yeah and for me like it debuted around the time when i was still actively watching the director video films like i was probably right. i was probably about 10 but i remember being relatively bored by it and that was yeah. telling because like i watched Lion King 2 a bunch or um, some of the others that were released in that period and Hunchback 2 never quite did it for me which is surprising given how much I love the original but um, I guess it shows that kids can be discerning in terms of what what <laughs> clicks with them or at least you would hope <laughs> so. Um, yes yeah I mean I don't know how you could even uh, as, as producers of that film think that they would be able to replicate uh, the the beauty and the depth of the original film on a directed video budget. <laughs> it's just yeah. impossible. Well, and you know, it's so funny because I think of, of the Aladdin sequels and mm. I can't, mind you, it's been a long time since I've watched them, but that almost seemed more appropriate because Aladdin had much more of a fantastical, cartoony, playful vibe. So even yeah. a lower a lower budget and, and certainly the, the TV series um, fell into that category as well. A lower budget wouldn't compromise your attachment and connection to the characters, whereas Hunchback was uh, in a completely different territory. Yes, completely. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I, I told you, James, before we recorded and before we did this, we did not need to watch Hunchback 2 to be properly prepared. So, no, I did not. <laughs> But uh, any, any, as we wrap up, James, any final takeaways in terms of Hunchback's lasting legacy, the music, and, and what it means to you? I've seen a few adaptations of Hunchback, and as I say, I've read the book and enjoyed that very much. And I've seen versions, I think a silent version from the 1920s, um, another one from 1939, and then there's one with, I think it's... Uh, Anthony Hopkins, a TV movie from 1982. And I, the story always resonates with me. Um, and, and I've enjoyed all of the adaptations I've seen or heard. 
but the the, the animated uh, Disney Hunchback is just something else because it's it's beautiful. It has that undercurrent of the not undercurrent. It, it has the message of um, acceptance and accepting yourself, and that is massively valuable. Uh, but then it has ridiculous. It has one of my favourite uh, throwaway lines, which is Achilles' heel. <laughs> yeah. So you've got this incredible depth, and you have this awful, awful villain who wants to do terrible things, but then balanced out with this ridiculous humour and the guy being "I'm free" and the um, it's I think it's just got everything for me, everything I'm looking for in a film. <laughs> and even I noted down uh, one of my other sort of. I think it's Kevin Klein's performance. There are so many throwaway lines. He, I don't think he gets enough credit for Phoebus for making him sort of hunky character that you kind of you want Esmeralda to um, be with. But he's also a bit of a doofus, but uh, lovely so. And he has that wonderful line: "I didn't know you had a kid," which obviously plays <laughs> uh, with the goat thing and. Uh, there, every time I watch it, I, I'd appreciate little bits of it more. Um, and, and I think that's what it's one of the, you know, I mean, uh, you could probably get people saying this about all sorts of Disney films, but I think it's a film that is particularly has so much depth watching as an adult who is um, who is familiar with broader cultural and filmic references so you can enjoy. Uh, the fly my pretties references and uh, everything else that's going on on, on top of the, the the story that really drives you on. So as as ever, Brett, I have rambled on in, incoherently to tell you that uh, yeah, I just think Hunchback is a, a fantastic film. And if you're not watching it uh, or you haven't seen it and you listen to this podcast, then what are you doing? <laughs> Get out and watch it. Exactly. No, I, I was able to follow everything. It was very coherent. <laughs> Two things. One, it was a shame that Kevin Klein did not have an opportunity to sing in the film. Yeah. Um, yes, that's one of the things I like about the musical, yeah. the, the, the rest and re recreation. There's a, there's a good song for, for Phoebus, at least, not for Kevin Klein. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah, I, I totally agree with you on that. And two, I think there, there could be a, there could be an interesting Mary Poppins hunchback mashup if you had a song called Jolly Holiday, but with the goat. So <laughs> um, if Disney wants to mesh that, um, I would welcome uh, hearing an adaptation. Yeah, I'm happy with that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, as always, uh, I, I mean, I think this served as just a wonderful discussion and you're definitely the right person to, to bring on for this, uh, James, before we conclude, uh, let's make sure listeners know how to follow your work. Could you share um, a bit about your books and also your social media platforms? Yes, I can. I was um, just consulting my book when we were talking about uh, spin-offs <laughs> for Hunchback. Um, and uh, I think you covered them all. Uh, so I've written, well, there are going to be four volumes of Disney Connections and Collections. Volume one covers movies. Volume two covers um, TV movies and episodes of the Disneyland Anthology show and the ones that came after it. Volumes one and two are out and available on Amazon now um, in physical form and digitally. And uh, they're 
what they are is kind of a reference guide to all the uh, Disney films and other content and how they are have been spun off into the wider Disney world. And also um, in this, I realize in this world where everything is going digital, it shows you where you can, uh, well, it, it tells you which films have been released on DVDs and special editions, uh, which ones have got soundtrack CDs or um, that you can download. Um, and the third volume and the fourth volume are both with uh, Theme Park Press at the moment and, and going through the process to be published hopefully later this year, we'll see. Volume three focuses on Disney's shorts output, that's animated and live action shorts. Um, and volume four is going to cover, uh, will cover Touchstone and Hollywood Pictures films. Um, and if you want to find some links to them, um, and you'll find them on my website, which is jamesdoes.co.uk. Um, I'm also, can I give a cheeky plug? I'm a, a, yes. a proofreader. <laughs> I proofread uh, mainly academic work. So if you're an academic, academic luckily I can write better than I can speak. Um, I, I proofread mainly academic work, PhD theses and uh, papers and things. That's my, my main day job. Uh, and you can find details on jamesdoes.co.uk about how to get in touch with me. And there's a link on there to my um, LinkedIn and uh, Instagram, I think, as well. So you can catch me on there. Very good. James, always a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for uh, making this hunchback uh, discussion very festive and flavorful <laughs> and certainly um, uh, really honoring the, the the richness of the film and its music. So thanks for coming on Notably Disney again. Thank you for inviting me, Brett. I enjoy it every time. <laughs> My thanks as always to James Mason for coming on to Notably Disney, perfect person to talk about Hunchback with me, I think, and I hope you enjoyed his insights and opinions. Well, what were some of your favorite lasting memories of Hunchback of Notre Dame? Do you agree with our interpretations of the songs and score? In what ways has Hunchback impacted your life? Maybe you've been to a stage performance or you own some of the merchandise like me uh, would love to hear your thoughts feel free to as always email me at notablydisney at gmail.com or feel free to follow me on twitter again b-n-a-c-h-m-a-n reports thanks again james and hope you all enjoy revisiting the hunchback of notre dame Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports. And be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company.